I'm going to show my hand pretty quickly in this sermon. I, and, and I recognize that this is maybe the oddest Father's Day sermon you've ever heard in your life. But I feel, I have never felt more compelled to preach a sermon in my life. Uh, I, had, I had a Father's Day sermon. We did a Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day this year, kind of a, a standard Mother's Day shtick type thing. And I had something similar planned for Father's Day. We were going to call it Protector and just talk about masculinity and what it means to protect the weak and, 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 and talk about some of the correlations between the two. And I just cannot, and, and, and I, I apologize ahead of time if this is just really, is, if this is beyond weird, but I can't get the topic of suicide off my, off my brain this week. And I feel like I have to talk about it. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've had several celebrity suicides recently. And uh, this, the, the clip you saw was from the movie Sea of Trees with Matthew McConaughey, where he enters Aokigahara, which is the, the forest that you see on the screen. It's, it's a Japanese um, park near Mount Fuji. And it's the first or second most common place that people in the world choose to go commit suicide. And, and back, back about a decade ago, the numbers were between 70 and 100 every year would, would go into this forest. And so hikers would find these people who had hung themselves or, or killed themselves. And those numbers seemed to be climbing. And the, the Japanese government stopped publishing the numbers in a hope to diminish the, the desire for people to go there and to end their lives. And just reading up on some statistics, in, in this country, at any given time, uh, about 4% of the people you run into have seriously contemplated suicide that year. So out of, if you know 1,000 people, then 40 of them. And, and we're not talking about the standard thing where, that all of us do, thinking, man, this life is tough. I, I, I just wish it would end. Everybody goes through those time periods. That's, that's fairly common for almost every human being. But we're talking about people who have made plans, people who have, have sat down and thought, if I end my life, this is how I'm going to. And about 4%. So in, so in this room right now, there's, a, there's statistically one, two, three, four people that have made plans. And, and so I don't want to pretend this is a prophecy from God that I have to preach because somebody in here today is planning on killing themselves on Father's Day. Uh, that, that, that feels generic to me because statistics bear out that if I just preach this sermon, somebody's going to hear it. But I'm telling I can't get it out of my head. I, I feel like I have to talk about it today. And the interesting thing is, I felt this way for, for maybe over a week now. And then a couple days ago, my wife, not knowing that, came to me with this story she had just read about a girl who was running a, a, a marathon or a race in memory of her father. who had, it, it, was, it, was, it was a suicide awareness race. And the implication was that the father had committed suicide on Father's Day. And she, just not, not even knowing that I was preparing this sermon, came and told me that story just a couple days ago. And, and I, 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 like I said, I'm just going to show my hand. I'm here to beg you, please don't. I'm here to tell you your story is not over. I'm telling you that, that, that tomorrow is a different day than today is. I'm telling you that you are valuable, that you are a masterpiece. You are important. And what could happen in your life 20 years from now is important. And to end that now would be a tragedy. Don't do it. Hold off. Even if it means holding off one more day, even if it means holding off one more week, don't do it. Just put one foot in front of the other. Whatever you have to do to keep going, keep going and watch. The sun will shine. The day will change. Your life will not look the same a week from now or a year from now as it feels like it does right now. I want to I talk about you being a masterpiece primarily, and I, because I believe if people, and, and I'm just, just by a show of hands, how many of you in here have been seriously wounded by suicide around you? Anybody? I mean, look, look at the hand. Most of the hands are going up. 
And if, and, and, and if a person is to kill themselves, they leave people in tremendous pain. It's not a healing thing. It's a wounding thing. But you are a masterpiece. The Mona Lisa is probably the most famous piece of art in the world. And we're just going to take a stab real quick at what, is it, what do you think it is insured for? What is the value of the Mona Lisa? Who wants to take a stab? Just yell it out. Do you guys know this? or? Yeah, 100 million is the answer. Are you guys just like art geeks that know this? Yeah. So, <laughs> So, so it's insured for $100 million. The, value, the, 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 the money value of the Mona Lisa is $100 million. And the, the, you look at it and you're like, well, why? I mean, what is it about it that is so amazing? And, and if you read up on it, it's actually really fascinating. The Mona Lisa has this tremendous history uh, since, it was, since it was painted. And um, one of the things that's so spectacular about it is it, when, when it was created, it used the sfumato technique, which I have no idea what this is, so I looked it up. And the sfumato technique, which you can read on the screen, uh, back, back in the days that the Mona Lisa was painted, people would start with an outline or an etching, and then they would paint around it and, and use the different colors to display the different parts of the painting. Well, Leonardo da Vinci painted in this technique where he started with just darkness on the, on the, screen, on, on the canvas. It was just covered in, in like dark shades and dark colors. And then he would put layer after layer after layer after layer of different colors to pull her out of the darkness. And it's really, if you, if you look at her, she's really, she's really beautiful for one. But like even the gossamer veil over her face and over her head the art that it took to produce that, coming out of darkness to produce that translucent material, and you, can, you almost just feel like you can touch it, is really amazing. The cracks that you see all over the painting, and this is a close-up of a portion of it, the cracks you see all over it are actually from somebody trying to protect it, so they one day covered it with a lacquer of sorts, and that lacquer over time cracked and became kind of ugly. But she has gone through a lot of trauma in her life, and I, I saw her at the Louvre a bunch of years ago, and I, I, you know, it was a room about this big with just, just the painting on the wall and guards, of course, in front of the painting and like 200 people between me and her. And so I, the only thing I have is a picture from way up here. But I remember thinking how fragile she looked, just how vulnerable she looked. And, and of course, if you look carefully, you'll see there's a frame around her and that frame covers glass. It's like the National Treasure movies where the Declaration of Independence is protected. And this frame contains heat sensing, motion sensing. It's bulletproof glass. I mean, she's... She's well protected, and she has to be well protected because people have tried to destroy her her entire life. And in, in 1911, before that protection, she was actually stolen and hid away in the bandit's apartment for a couple days, until, and the whole nation mourned like someone had died, and everybody was out to get this bandit. And they eventually caught him and found the Mona Lisa and rescued her. In 1956, before the bulletproof glass, somebody splashed a, a, a vial of acid on her. It's, it's pretty interesting. You, you may or may not have noticed that she has no eyebrows. And part of that is the wear and tear, and it's just kind of funny to think that her eyebrows were burnt away by acid, but there's some truth to that. If somebody threw a vial of acid on her, and her eyelids and eyebrows uh, are a part of that whole process of, of decay over the years and then just the trauma that she's gone through. One of the things you'll, you'll notice about her, and, and what's always mentioned and they've made movies about, is Mona Lisa's smile. And, what they say is if you look, and you can do this right now and see if it works for you. For some it seems to and for some it doesn't. But if you focus on her eyes, it seems like her face is kind of lit up in a smile. 
But if you slowly move your, your, your vision down to her lips, you'll see that her lips are just kind of straight across, that it's, it's kind of a play on the shadows. And Da Vinci did that on purpose so that it's kind of an optical. He, he, used, he used his paint to create an optical illusion. And actually, there was a suicide person who left a note saying he couldn't get past her smile. It, it, something about her smile drove him insane. And, and so her smile is, is what, one of the things that's so special about her. And the same year that somebody threw acid at her, somebody else threw a rock at her and chipped away part of her left elbow. And you can still see that today on, on some of the images that she's missing part of her left elbow. The most recent attack occurred in 2009 when a woman went to the, to the, uh, to the gift shop at the, at the Louvre and bought a teacup and filled it with tea and took it and hurled it at her and apparently scored a direct hit right on her face but fortunately, it hit the glass and shattered off, and, and she remained unharmed. And that particular woman was examined, and they investigated her to find out if she had a particular syndrome. And it's probably a syndrome none of you have ever heard of. Until I started doing this research, I had never heard of this thing, and it's called Stendhal syndrome. And apparently, there's some people that, in the presence of really amazing art, kind of lose their minds. And, and so, like you see here, it's a, a rare condition in which often perfectly sane individuals momentarily lose all reason and may attack a work of art. And there, at, when, when this syndrome was kind of documented the first time, they had 107 cases of it. And it doesn't always end in violence, but it's, it's where the, there's heart palpitations, increased breathing, adrenaline flows. When somebody gets in front of fine art, something happens to particular people that is kind of off the scale odd. And in some cases, that ends in violence. Sometimes they want to destroy the thing that is making their pulse race. And over, over history, you'll find all kinds of art that has been destroyed. Um, there's, there's a painting of Monet, that, by, I mean by Monet, that I, if I remember right, was worth about 1.2 or 1.8 million dollars when this happened, but a man just put his fist through it at the museum. I mean, just, just an act of violence against something beautiful. Uh, the, the, the statue of the Roman philosopher Seneca, which was also at the Louvre, they say this perfectly rational, normally calm math professor who was a calm family man managed to get a hold of a hammer and come in and start attacking this statue of Seneca. Just went hog wild, just, just craziness. There was a painting by Cy Twombly, which was valued at $2.8 million at the time. And in that painting, there was this particularly, particular space that was just white space, which right now you see there's a bunch of lipstick on it. And that's because a woman applied a bunch of lipstick and went up and kissed that white space. And she said she was just compelled to fill that space, that she was overcome with passion for the art. And we consider her a kook. But I will say I think she improved the painting, right? It's kind of, it's kind, it's kind of the only interesting part, right? But this kook just couldn't control herself in light of this painting being in front of her. And, and, and I, I think you, you may see where I'm going with this is that we find this behavior particularly odd. Right? When we hear about someone who wants to destroy something so beautiful, we think, why? Why would you want to do that? What, we think, what's wrong with you? We think, get help. Right? And, and I don't mean that to diminish the, the mental part and the biochemical part of suicide, but I, I mean it to say you are a masterpiece, and if you're wanting to destroy that masterpiece, please, like the person who stood in front of the Monet, please at least take a step back and think. Please at least go talk to someone. Please at least get some help. I think you're a masterpiece. There's a quote from, who can tell me what movie this quote comes from? 
Princess Bride, that's right. Princess Bride. So the character Wesley is in this duel with a guy, and at the end of it, he wins the duel, and he says, I would sooner destroy a stained glass window than an artist like yourself. However, since I can't have you following me, so he clubs him over the head with the, the heel of his sword and knocks him unconscious. But it, it's, 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 a, it's a poignant quote where our topic is concerned, in that if we see people as valuable, as we, if we see ourselves as valuable, and it, the implications are far more reaching than just suicide. It just has to do with how you deal with people, how you treat people. Why would you, why would you want to harm someone that's such a masterpiece? Why wouldn't you want to nurture and protect and admire people who are masterpieces, like every single person is? And I think if you watch around you and you just look at people, you'll learn to people watch, you're going to see a bunch of masterpieces. One of the things I want to say to you loud and clear today is that your story is not over and that your story can end well. Your story can be fascinating. And if you look in the eyes of this guy, this guy, his, his life story is a 50,000-word novel at this point, or 50,000-page novel at this point, and the pages are still turning. And if you just look at him as a masterpiece, you see how valuable he is. If he cuts you off in traffic, you're going to think differently of him. As you look through these, this is a story that's really not yet been told, but there's, there's, it's a masterpiece. This is, it, every single human being you look at is just captivating if you allow yourself to see it. She's captivating. She's amazing. This girl's incredible. Some stories are romantic, some stories aren't. Every single person, if you just look at them, if you just take time to admire the masterpiece that God has created them to be, you would never want to do them harm. And if you can start to do that, you'll start to see that in the mirror. You'll start to see yourself that way. Fatherly love is, is, a, is, a, is a story that will make you weep. This guy may spend his whole life in hot, humid conditions in a jungle just doing the best he can so that his kids can live on a bamboo floor and eat rice every day. And he's a masterpiece. He's a fascinating dude. In some sense, I want to be him because he's so ripped and shredded and his smile, and I just, I like him a lot. But if you just walk through your day and notice people and, and admire people as the, as the works of art that they are, then when you look in the mirror, if you can start to see yourself that way, you would never want to do yourself harm. You would say, my story is not done. There's more to my story than this. It doesn't need to end here. I want to talk just briefly about what kind of masterpiece you are. You're a biological masterpiece. You know, with all of our technology, we can't come close to duplicating anything in the human body. Just, just the gait of your walk and the nervous system that goes into that. Most of the time, you walk without falling down. Some of you fall down more than others. I get that. Most of the time, you don't even think about it. it it's, it's processes that you don't even control and you don't even have to con be conscious of that just go on. It's incredible the role that happens between your heel and your toes that you don't even stop to think about the muscles and nerves involved in it. Your fingernails, and they, they say you can tell your masculinity by how you look at your nails, and I don't, I don't remember which one is masculine and which one is not, but, and, and I don't really care. I think it's actually pretty stupid to even talk about. <laughs> I pinched my fingernail between some weights in the gym, and you guys can tell that I'm in the gym constantly, I know. I pinched it, and it turned purple quickly. And over the months, I watched that purple spot on my fingernail just move towards the tip of my nail and ultimately vanish. Do you know why? It's because my fingernails regenerate. I don't do anything about it. I don't think about it. I didn't go eat extra calcium. I don't even know if calcium is involved in the process. But I did, I did nothing for that process to happen. We can't come close to creating anything that regenerates itself. 
But somehow when I eat food, my body knows where to sort everything and where to sit everything and where to send everything so that it will eventually get to right where it needs to be. So these little hard tools at the end of my finger that are so valuable. If you've ever really hurt a fingernail, you figure out real quick how often you use them. I was, I was picking up a little piece of metal. There were some metal shards in my house from this little magnet toy that my kids play with. And I was trying to pick it up off the desk. And I could barely do it even with my fingernails. But my fingernail, I didn't have to go get a screwdriver. I didn't have to go get a knife. I just had this little tool at the end of my fingers. And this is just one little stupid thing in the human body that is just fascinating. The eyebrows. I, now, I have these orcish eyebrows. I get that. I didn't even want to point out my eyebrows in front of you guys. The eyebrows, what do they do? What are they for? What's the teleology of an eyebrow? What does it do? It mumbles what? Tell me. It protects the eyes, right? Especially from sweat, right? I was at a barbecue joint picking up barbecue yesterday, and the, the little foyer out front had like 12 people in it and no air conditioning and was being pelted by the hot sun. And I started dripping, and I noticed that I didn't get my own salty sweat in my eyes, and that's because I have these bushes on my forehead, and it deflects them, right? And some people want to say that that's just a random process and natural selection caused that. To me, it just looks artistic. Not on me necessarily, but on some of you that, that tweak them and make them look beautiful. But they have, a, they have a purpose behind them. And you are a biological wonder. If nothing else, you're just a work of art that walks around every single day. Be that. If that's all you can find in yourself to live, do it. Just say, hey, I'm pretty spectacular because I can breathe, because my lungs work. They draw oxygen out of my blood and send it where it needs to go. And that's fascinating, and that's enough to hold on for one more day. You are a biological masterpiece. You are a metaphysical masterpiece. We've tried to create artificial intelligence. And, and seriously, like 97% of you in the room have actual intelligence. It's fascinating. That was a joke. It's okay to laugh. We try to create artificial intelligence, and then you watch the movies. When they actually do create artificial intelligence, what does it do? It does evil. It takes over the world. You are an intelligent and benevolent being. You're a masterpiece. The artist, the artist of all artists, create, it created someone with an actual volition, an actual will, and gave it to you and let you choose, and you walk around wanting to help people. You, want to, you walk around wanting to do good, making the best out of your life. It's fascinating. You're a metaphysical Masterpiece. Just the fact that you have a will is really spectacular and interesting. You're an extension of the artist. Termaine over here is a visual artist, and he does, he does artwork. And I, and I can tell a, a Termaine piece of art when I see it. When he does a work and I see it hanging on a wall, or if, if, if I see a picture of it somewhere, I, can, I know immediately who did it because I know him. Because the artwork is a reflection of him. And you are a reflection of the artist that created you. You are designed to bring glory to God. You are a living, walking, volitional, fingernail-bearing piece of art that brings glory to the artist. In Ephesians 2, it says you're an extension of the artist. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Jesus himself said, let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. You have value for many reasons, but one of the reasons you are so valuable is because you get to point people towards their creator. You were designed as a piece of art, a, a work of beauty that people can see and see what is eternally beautiful, see what is existentially beautiful, see something way beyond themselves. And you, you as a person, as an individual, were designed to carry that light. 
The appraisal is in. So we talked about the Mona Lisa and the way, how, how do we determine the cash value of the Mona Lisa? Really the only way we would do it is because art, art appraisers have appraised her and said this is what she's worth. They've looked at her and said this is probably what the going market on the Mona Lisa would be. And your appraisal has been done. God has let us know how valuable you are. It says from the very beginning, before you were born in the womb, it says God set you apart, that he knew you. From the very beginning, you were known by God. In Isaiah 49, it says, Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He knows you. He knows who you are. He's personally invested and personally interested in your life. And it says he showed his love by giving his son. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you want to know how much something is worth, you look at what would someone be willing to give for it. That's how you know the value of something. If you try to sell a house, it's based on what will the market give. If you try to sell advertising, if you try to sell a car, it's all about who's going to pay what for it. Well, what we find out is that God gave it all. God gave everything for you. God gave everything for us. He gave his only son. Now, I don't know what that means in terms of biology. What does it mean that God had an only son? But, it, but here's what I know. As a father, it's the last thing I'll give. I know it's the most valuable thing in my life. You can have everything else, but you're not taking my kids. That's, that's my take on what is most valuable in my life. And, and Scripture paints this picture multiple times. God so loved the world, the most famous passage in all the Bible, that he gave his only son. He loved, so he gave all. The appraisal is in, and God has said, you are worth anything. You are worth pain where pain wasn't necessary. You are worth sacrifice where I didn't have to sacrifice. You are worth me coming down from my throne and entering a hovel. You are worth everything. The appraisal is in, and you are valuable. Again, in 1 John, it says, This is the love of God that was made manifest among us. God sent his only son. I want to point out that some art stays in the attic for a very long time. Some of the most spectacular pieces of art that we know of today ended up covered in dust and cobwebs in an attic somewhere or in a basement somewhere because no one knew their value or thought they were a fraud or thought they were a fake. And that might be where your story is right now. You might, you might think, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm in the dinge. I'm buried. I'm in the darkness. Nobody cares about me. I'm not accomplishing anything in my life. I'm a failure. I'm a burden to others. I'm just taking up space. This particular painting that you see here is called Sunset at Montemore, and it's a, it's a Van Gogh. And Van Gogh died in 1890. And from about the time this painting was, that we know of the history of this painting, which was 1908, until about 2012, 2013, it was thought to be valueless. It was, many people had looked at it and said, this is not actually a Van Gogh, it's a fake. And so it literally sat in an attic covered in dust for almost 100 years. And then they finally, so, so some people bought this house and found this Van Gogh in their attic and brought it out and thought, hey, maybe there's something to this. So they had it investigated. And finally, in 2013, they came up with some new techniques, some, some chemical techniques to test the paint, to test the wood, and so forth, to try to compare it to Van Gogh's other works. And they found out the thing was absolutely real, that it was a Van Gogh. And today it hangs in a museum. Um, and, and, and interestingly enough, then a letter was found between Van Gogh and his brother that described exactly this painting and when he painted it and where he painted it. And so now, not only is it scientifically 
demonstrable that this was a Van Gogh, but it's, it's kind of forensically demonstrable as well, is that we have multiple lines of evidence to show it. But do you see, for a hundred years of its life, nobody cared about it. Now, people in museums admire it. People buy postcards with this print on it. And that can be your story, too. When it comes to suicide, when it comes to self-harm, just get through one more day because the sun will shine tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know who's going to come into that attic and rescue you. You don't know who's going to suddenly, finally recognize your value. And it may take a long time. It may, you may feel like you're in darkness for a very long time, but that day will come. That's the kind of God that has created the universe. I'm a believer that God is on your side and he's out to help you. And sometimes you have to walk through a dark path to see the light of God shine in your life. Now, I want to say this quickly. If you do some studying, psych psychology today says that there are mainly six reasons why people would, would commit suicide. And the top two are depression and psychosis. And so, the, and, and depression, as, as the church and as individuals, we need to recognize that depression goes way, way deeper than just feeling lousy. All of us, many people say, I think I'm depressed, when what we really mean is I'm sad. Depression is a chemical thing going on in the brain of human beings that is also tied to experiential stuff and volition and culminates in despair is what it is. And psychosis is when you're just not thinking clearly. So many people who commit suicide, just they, they can't quite wrap their brain around their situation or that there is hope in the future. They can't see it because their brain is tricking them. And so I, wanna, I, I wanted to say all that to say that just a pep talk is not going to work. If I just give a pep talk today, it, maybe you'll hold off another day. Maybe somebody who's watching these videos at home will hold off one more day. But I am a definite believer that not only does Jesus want to help, but Jesus has put systems and science in place to help. And I want to encourage you to get help. I want to encourage you to seek professional help. If you're one of the three or four or ten people in the room who, who actually do make plans and actually do consider suicide, I hope that this sermon, if nothing else, if it accomplishes nothing else, it will help you recognize that something is, is not where it needs to be. Something is a little bit off, and I could use some help. And that you, if nothing else, that you will be encouraged to reach out for that help. And there are people who can help. And there's medicine that can help. And there are systems in place of people who can talk you through stuff and help you see a brighter day ahead. I want to close with this idea that there is a lover nearby. I started a new diet a uh, month and a half ago. And you don't need the details on it, but it was a radical change from how I process food and how I eat food. And for the first two weeks, I experienced what I, what I would honestly describe as depression. Uh, there was something biochemical going on in me. There was something in me that I just, my brain was just not right. And I'm telling you, I hated life. I, you know, and it's, it's, it's way deeper than I don't get pizza, so I hate life. There was, there was despair in me. I felt like I was failing as a husband, failing as a father, failing as a pastor, failing as a human being. I just wanted to move to the country and just vanish. And I, and I, but, I, but I could see that something was just not right. And so I reached out to some friends, and I reached out to my nutritionist, and we tweaked my diet. And man, as soon as we tweaked my diet, it helped a little bit. But I started praying, and I said, God, I need your help. 
I need you to help me because I can't do this because I'm having these feelings that I know are not coming from me, but I just feel this despair. And I, I'm supposed to be the pastor, right? I'm supposed to have it all together. I'm supposed to be the good family man and the good father, but I just hate everything right now. And I'm walking, so, so when I get down or when I'm feeling confused about a sermon or whatever, I go walk the pond at my house. This is Orchard Lake Drive. This is where we live. And this is the pond. And this is about five houses down from me. And some of you know this because I've talked about it before. But I'm walking around this pond, and I just pace, and I just talk, and I pray. And I, I probably look like a lunatic to the people that like, live right next to the pond. They're like, oh, there's the dude again that talks to himself. And, but I'm walking around, and I don't often claim that I hear God's voice very clearly, but I felt like that day God spoke to me as clearly as he ever has. And he said, look how sunny it is. And, and I don't, was that God? I, I don't know. But here's what I know is that something snapped. Something in my brain changed at that point, and I thought, you know, you're right, it is. Life isn't so bad. Life isn't so terrible. And I'm not saying God does a miracle fix. I've had some down days since then. We're still tweaking the diet. I still have days where I'm up and days where I'm down, but I hold on to that thought of, look how sunny it is, and I can do it in a dark room like this. I can look at you guys and see how beautiful you are and how amazing you are, and it encourages me. But it was God, in my opinion, speaking into my life in a moment of need. And I'm telling you, that God is there waiting for you. You say, I'm down. I'm useless to anyone. I'm a burden. Nobody likes me. I'm telling you, give God a year. I'm telling you, start reading the Bible. Start praying to Him. Start seeking Him. Start admiring Him, worshiping Him, and watch what He does. He is a miracle-working God. So I'm, I'm a believer in the science. I'm a believer in psychiatrists. I think everybody ought to have a therapist. I really do believe that. But I'm also a believer that God can supernaturally, miraculously touch you if you'll place yourself in a position to allow him to do so. Jeremiah says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Everlasting love sounds like a cheesy 80s, music, 80s song that nobody actually believes could ever happen. But that's the, God, that's, that's the love that God offers. This is what we all want. This is the cure for anything that drags us down is that we are loved and we love. And God says that love is available. It says rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Is that if we are connected to God and we are worshiping Him and we're looking around every day and seeing Him and the masterpiece He's, he's placed in front of the masterpieces He places in front of us all day every day, I'm of the opinion that that alone can help us move in the direction we need to go if we're wanting to do away with this life. One last thought, and then I have a video I want to show you. Physically, literally killing yourself is one thing. Figuratively allowing your life to die away is another. And some people will never actually go through the act of self-harm, but many people will just give up. And hiding a piece of art away for no one to see is virtually the same as vandalizing it. Your life was meant to be something important. Don't let the voices in your head, don't let the voices of the past allow you to just give up on life. That's just a different kind of suicide. And God wants to pull you out of that as well. If you guys would, there, there's a song by Danny Gokey. I'm, I'm a music snob. I recognize that. And this song is... Uh, 
a little more on the contemporary scale than I typically listen to, but there was something about it that just tied in with what I was talking about today so much that I wanted you to hear it. It's a live version. It's pretty cool. So if people are listening at the podcast or on the video, it's Danny Gokey. The song is called Masterpiece. And I just want to encourage you to do your best to listen closely to the words and let God minister to you through it. My friend Mike has, has come up here and just told me a very brief story that I think he should share with you. It, it shouldn't take but a couple minutes, but he, he wanted to share something. So here we go. Hi. Um, when I was 20, I, w- I was a student at UofL, um, and I got depressed. Uh, I lived in what was called Dorm 4 then. It's Johnny Unitas Tower now. It was a, it's the only high-rise dorm on campus and I was convinced that I wanted to jump off that. Um, and uh, I was depressed for about nine months. I had help from some uh, Christian folk. Uh, I, I ended up just forming some close relationships um, that helped me keep from doing what I wanted to do every day for nine months. When I got up in the morning, I felt bad enough I wanted to end it. Uh, But I can tell you now, I'm 62. um, I've had a good marriage, continue to have a good marriage. I have good kids. Um, God has been really good to me. And if you're thinking about um, doing something drastic, I just really implore you to not do that. Uh, You may feel bad now, uh, but God can turn that around. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And Mike, I'm assuming that you would be willing to talk to anybody that... Absolutely. And, uh, and we can communicate, because a lot of people listen on the podcast and on the video cast, and if that's you, uh, just, just contact us via our website at daylightchurch.com, and we will put you in, in touch with Mike if you could use somebody to talk to.